Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 3. We are back in Mark today. It was supposed to be a one-week break. It ended up being a two-week break. It's not how we planned it, but it's how it happened. And uh, I want to thank uh, Adam for stepping in last second last week. And I'm um, grateful for a team that can call audibles like that. But if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you. Um, if you get to page 889, you'll be in Mark chapter 3. And before I jump into the sermon, we, we're trying to do a better go- job of celebrating what the Lord is doing around here. And uh, one of the things that always excites us is whenever ministry travels from this building and this hour outside of the church. And, and there are a couple bins out in the connect room, and there's one more in the welcome center um, that I want to point your attention to because uh, we get to celebrate some things that people are doing. And first is our food pantry. Uh, they, are, they are currently serving about 150 families a month, uh, which is an exorbitant amount of food. And so you've, you'll find some uh, bins out there. Um, they have different items of the month if you track with us. Um, I think this month is canned soup. Uh, you can drop those off, and, and any little bit goes a long way into helping them uh, make a positive impact on the community. And others, is our fostering uh, ministry. We have several families um, who are in fostering or in training to become foster family, foster parents, and so uh, we always want to be a support for them, and I, so I want to just put a bug in your ear. I'll be looking for uh, some opportunities to help them out uh, more in the future, um, and we'll be able to announce those in a couple weeks. Uh, but one, one thing that we're doing right now for uh, Department of Child Services in Vigo County is we're just having a diaper drive. Uh, when these kids are taken um, from unsafe environments in the middle of the night, supplies can be hard to come by, and so uh, they like to have on standby lots of different items. And so there's some cards out by the bin out there with different sizes of diapers. If you can take one of those, buy that size of diaper and bring it back and drop it off, uh, then Shelby McConaughey will make sure they get to where they need to go. And so I want to point out both of those to you, um, both to celebrate what what the Lord is doing uh, through people here, but also to give you chances to be a part of it as well. Uh, I want to, again, thank you for being here. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch into the sermon. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, for the opportunity we have uh, to be here this morning. We're grateful for the, for the worship that we've already been able to experience and that team uh, who gave of themselves this morning, God, to, to, help, to help us center our thoughts on you. And so we're grateful for them and we're grateful for that time. And as we turn our attention now to your word, uh, God, we pray that you uh, would, would illuminate our minds and hearts, God, that you would, would make this uh, word living and active as it is, that it would cut sharper than any two-edged sword, that it would return to you, not void, but having accomplished the exact purposes that you set forth for it to accomplish. Uh, Get the glory from this, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So it was a little over a decade ago, uh, I, was, I was running uh, the college young adult ministry here at FBN, and I got a call from my wife, and she said, there's a moving truck uh, two houses down from us, and there's a whole bunch of college-age guys with Indiana State football shirts on moving a bunch of stuff in. I was like, well, I got I to gotta get there and at least check that out and introduce myself, right? And so I got excited and I drove home and tried to meet the new neighbors. And that's when I met this really strong, intimidating looking guy. And he told me that he was the strength coach for Indiana State University and he worked with the football team. I was like, well, a lot, a lot of what I'm seeing starts to make sense, right? And over time, a friendship began to develop between he and I and we started playing basketball together. And that's when I found out what he did on the weekends, that he was a mixed martial arts fighter, now, he wasn't at like an elite national level in the UFC, but, but regionally he was legendary. He fought down in Sullivan, and he had fought everybody in his weight class and defeated them all. And they're like, we have nobody else left for you to fight. And so we'll bring in a guy from Chicago who's also undefeated. And my neighbor knocked this guy out in the first round and broke his jaw, right? 
In addition to that, he had a pit bull dog named Petey that he had rescued, and he didn't ever want me to bring my kids around the dog. He said he didn't trust that it wouldn't revert back to its aggressive ways um, when he, how he found the dog. And so he, he always did a really good job at keeping us safe from it. But if you add all that up, right, I can't find a more intimidating house in our neighborhood. I a strong, fit strength coach who's a trained MMA fighter with a rescued pit bull with a history of aggressiveness, right? If, if my daughters ever sell Girl Scout cookies, I'm not sending them there, okay? But one day he picked me up and, and he, we went to an ISU basketball game and at half I asked him, by the way, like why, why did you move into our neighborhood? Like what, what made you move into Northwood? And he told me that he lived closer to town, in town, closer to campus. He had a shorter drive to work. But shortly after his first son was born, someone had tried to break in their house in the middle of the night. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I grabbed up my baseball bat and then I grabbed Petey, who was the pit bull. And I waited on the other side of the door and I was watching the handle just keep jiggle. So I'm picturing the scene, right? On the outside of the house, there's someone messing with the lock, trying to break in and just inside the door, is a strength coach who's a trained MMA fighter with a Louisville slugger in one hand and a pit bull's collar in the other. And he told me whoever it was just couldn't get the door open and finally gave up and must have went home. Maybe he heard Petey growl or something and he decided that he just didn't need that drum's life and that's when he made the decision to move. So I got home that night and Corinne asked me how it was or if we talked about anything and I said, well, I learned something today. And she said, what? I said, I learned the luckiest criminal in the world is still walking around Terre Haute somewhere. Because if that door had somehow opened, right, that would not have gone well for the lad. I'm sure of it, right? It would not have been a fair fight. Now, we're back in Mark today, and in, it, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus faces an accusation. It's one of the worst accusations that one could ever face. He's accused of being possessed by a demon and working for Satan. The Son of God is accused of these things. And he addresses those who make these accusations, and his answer is pretty obvious. Number one, he points out how illogical that accusation is, and then he goes on to compare himself to the kingdom of darkness, and his conclusion is this, it's not even a fair fight. And so we're going to look at the reality of darkness today. We're going to look at the reality that there's a kingdom and a power at work that is not for us. In fact, they're very much against us. But we're also going to see the hope that Jesus gives in his power over and conquering of that kingdom. And so I'm going to invite Brooke Hogan up. She's going to be reading our passage this morning. She's going to be reading for you Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And if you could please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning. Morning, Brooke. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Thank you, Brooke. You guys have a seat. Keep your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 3. And this whole 
response. Every, every, if you, your Bible has red letters, everything in verses 23 to 29 is all in response to the accusation in verse 22. So let's understand the accusation first. Okay, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Mar, but we're going through it as a church. And if, if you need a reminder, right, we're two and a half chapters in, and already we've seen Jesus create quite a scene, right? Wherever he goes, he's, he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's teaching in ways that people have never heard, he's doing things that people have never seen, and so there's, there's all these large crowds that are following him, and oftentimes there's an hysteria level that they're pressing in on him, and so in verse 22, we are told that there are scribes, right? These are religious teachers that came from Jerusalem, and so these, these religious teachers were sent by the religious leaders from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. And this wasn't a, a goodwill gesture, right? They were sent to try to dig up some kind of dirt. They were sent to look for ways to discredit him. And what has happened is they cannot claim that he isn't doing these things because they have witnessed him and so has everyone else. They cannot discredit his teaching because there's nothing he's saying that is false. And so what they instead have come up with is another way to discredit him. And they've aimed it at his ability to cast out demons. And the language in verse 22 and in verse 30, the Greek language seems to suggest that this is not a one-time accusation, that they were going around telling everyone repeatedly the reason that Jesus is casting out demons is because he has a demon himself. The reason he can do this is because he's an agent. He's the servant of Beelzebul, which is the name they had given to Satan. That name literally means the master of the house. And so Jesus does this really cool thing. In verse 23, he calls these guys. He summons these guys to himself. Hey, you guys, making all these accusations. Why don't you come over here and talk to me for a little bit? And he even picked up on that meaning, the master of the house, in his parable. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus did not deny the reality of the kingdom of darkness. You see, whenever Jesus speaks, it's, it's worthy of our full attention, right? What he says is always powerful, but there are times that what he doesn't say is just as powerful. And he doesn't bring these guys over and respond to their accusation by saying, come on, guys. Like, you, you don't believe in a kingdom of darkness, do you? I mean, this idea that there's a dark ruler who's fighting against all the good God is doing in the world, it seems like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't do that. And the reason Jesus doesn't do that is because he knows the kingdom of darkness is very real. He's more aware than anybody that there's a war that has been waging since the beginning of time between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And this war is invisible. It's fought in secret, unseen places, in the heavens and soul level places. But just as we can't see where the wind comes from, but we can see the full effects of wind, we can't see this war, but we see the full effects and ramifications of it. Paul reminds the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6, he writes to them, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against humans, but our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The Bible is clear that people are never the enemy, they're slaves to our enemy. And that reality, it might seem subtle, but that reality is what allowed Jesus to have such compassion for sinners. And it's what should free us up to as well. But we see the ramifications of this world when you see on one side, right, the, the amazing potential of humanity. The, the unbelievable good that we can do when we, and that we can accomplish together when we're united and work together and, and, and put others before ourselves. And then on the other side, the unbelievable harm that we can do to one another. And all of it is people. It's all the same pool. 
And what this speaks to is the reality of warring kingdoms for the souls of people. And Jesus actually affirms the reality of the kingdom of darkness here. But he gives a logical answer to their claim that he's working on behalf of it. And he tells a parable. He tells multiple parables. First about a kingdom and then about a house. And it basically says anything that is divided against itself, that thing cannot stand. And the logical conclusion is this. So it makes sense that if Satan actually opposed himself and is divided against himself, then his kingdom wouldn't stand either. And what he's pointing out is that the king of darkness does not like to give up what it already has. And so if there was someone that they had oppressed, there was someone they were making their lives miserable and insufferable, they would not want to give that up. And so when Jesus strolls on the scene and he brings healing and freedom and release and changes their lives for the better, it makes zero sense that Satan would be behind that. Because the only thing he does is lose in that situation. Jesus then continues with another parable in which he claims clear superiority over Satan. Look at verse 27. He goes on, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, I'm I'm convinced this morning that whoever was on the other side of that door, had they gotten into my neighbor's house, it wouldn't have gone well for them. But I have to recognize this, the only way it would have, right, the only way they could be successful is the off chance that, that, that someone bigger and someone stronger and someone more powerful and more trained and more capable was trying to break in that house. That's what Jesus is saying here. The only way that you can take from a strong man is to be stronger. Because you must first subdue him. You must first bind him up. Then you can plunder him. You can take whatever you want from him at that point. You get what he's saying, right? Because the scribes would have. He's telling these guys, the reason that I can free people from demonic oppression and you've never been able to, the reason that I can bring hope where you've never been able to bring hope, the reason that I can be an agent of freedom and and forgiveness, the reason that I can deliver people from the kingdom of darkness is because I'm stronger than it. That's why every demon that Jesus cast out had to do exactly what he said, right? Not because they're willing subjects, but because it's not a fair fight, He's the single greatest authority and power in the universe. His his power is unmatched. According to Colossians 1, he is who is holding all creation together. And so there's no one, there's no being, there's no spirit, there's no kingdom, there's no thing that stands a chance against him. And after making this claim, he's addressing these guys who are purposely accusing him. And he does a really interesting thing. He offers them forgiveness and a warning. And look what he says in verse 28. He says, truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, look, I know what our brains do, right? Whenever we hear an amazing truth and a scary truth back to back, all we want to focus on is the scary one. And we're going to address it, I promise. But before, let's not lose sight of what was said in verse 28. Verse 28, Jesus says, truly, I tell you. It's, it's him saying, verily, verily. He's like affirming the truth of this before he says it. People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. You understand, don't you, that that statement is the foundation of our hope? 
That truth is the basis of our relationship with God. That it's the truth that opens us up for eternal life in heaven, that God forgives sins. If God didn't forgive sins, if the death of Jesus wasn't sufficient to forgive all our sins, past, present, and future, we'd be in real trouble this morning. We'd have absolutely nothing to sing about. We'd have nothing to believe in. We'd have nothing to hope in. We'd have nothing to have confidence in. But truly, I tell you, Jesus says, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Praise God. You know what he's speaking to there? He's speaking to the sufficiency of his death on the cross. It's enough. I promise you it's enough. But then he follows it with this really scary warning. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, right? Because they, have, because they are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, how do we make sense of that in light of what he just said the verse prior? This is a really great example of the importance of context, right? When, you, when you're studying and reading and applying and trying to understand the Bible, you need to understand context. What comes before a verse? What comes after a verse? What is happening in the scene around it? What is going on in the passage? Because if you just printed off Mark 3, verse 29 on a piece of paper this morning and read it alone, you could make hundreds of wrong conclusions and use that verse as your basis for them. But what is happening in this passage? Remember, he is talking to the religious scribes that have been sent from Jerusalem. He summoned them to himself in verse 23. And so who he summoned to himself is a, is a group of guys who were making a very serious accusation against him. And their accusation was mainly that his power was coming from Satan. So they were attributing what God the Son was doing through God the Spirit in obedience to God the Father to the work of the kingdom of darkness. The other thing that's important to note is this. They weren't doing this out of ignorance. These are the religious scribes. They would know the scriptures. They would know the prophecies. They would know that the Messiah, when he came, would be given this exact power. They had heard his teaching with their own ears and couldn't refute it. They had saw the miracles with their own eyes. They knew. The whole time we go through Mark, you need to understand they knew. And we have, we have evidence of this. In John 3, there, there was a, a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night and listen to this confession. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. We know. Why? Because nobody could do what you're doing unless, they, unless God were with them. So they know that. They, they, they knew this. And yet what do they do? They choose to deny the truth and slander the Holy Spirit. Standing in the light of the glory of God's one and only Son, they choose to close their eyes. And that persistent attitude of rejection, that persistent attitude of hard-heartedness, that persistent attitude of willful rebellion would lead them to an eternal rejection by God the Father, Jesus warns them. He's not warning them of a one-time sin or slip-up. He's warning them about an ongoing posture of rebellion and unbelief. And I know a question that everybody wants to ask, can we commit the unforgivable sin today? I don't really like the phrasing of that question, but I understand we want to ask it. So I decided to read lots of different takes on it this week, multiple pastors and scholars and commentaries that I respect greatly, and all of them landed in different places, not surprisingly. But they all agreed on one thing. They all agreed that Christians need not fear this. 
And so here's what I can offer you today with a clear conscience. Always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. This teaching of a blasphemy that is unforgivable, you know where it occurs? It occurs right here in Mark 3, and it also occurs in Matthew 12. And what's happening in Matthew 12 is Matthew's recording the exact same conversation. And so Jesus said it one time, and it's recorded by two different authors. There is verse after verse after verse after verse after verse in the Bible declaring the wonders of the free, full, and radical forgiveness of God. There is verse after verse about the sufficiency of Christ's death to forgive all sins of any who believe in him. There are verses about our imputed righteousness. There are verses about us being whole new creations in Christ Jesus and verses about our sins being removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so as we seek to interpret this passage, we should know that in light of the entire Bible, verse 28 is much louder than verse 29. There is one kingdom who would want you paralyzed. There's one kingdom who would want you in fear of losing your forgiveness and totally self-focused in all your thoughts and prayers for the rest of your days, and it's not Jesus' kingdom. It's the kingdom of darkness. And so do not let this concept leave you in a place of fear or doubting the sufficiency of the salvation that Jesus Christ has bought for you. With that said, there is a similar attitude There's a similar response and posture that we can take today that is unforgivable. And whether it's a one-for-one comparison or the same thing or something totally different, you all can debate another day. I don't really care. But just as what Jesus was warning the scribes of here wasn't a one-time act or one-time statement, but a persistent rejection, the cross of Jesus Christ can forgive anything except unbelief. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on our form. He sent him to live as one of us, to face what we face, and he remained sinless so that when he died on a cross, he was not dying for himself. He was dying to pay the price for the sins of any who believe in him and to prove it on the third day he rose again, defeating death and opening up heaven for us. He then established his church and gave them the mission of sharing this wonderful news in ministry of reconciliation. He gave us his word, which is active in living and cuts sharper than a two-edged sword and reveals to us our need. He sent us his spirit that convicts the world of sin and righteousness and shows us how much we need a savior. He reveals himself to us in creation so that all of us, according to Romans 1, are without excuse. And in light of everything that he did and all that he sacrificed and all the ways that he calls out to us and reveals both himself to us and our desperate, desperate need for him, if we still resist and we still reject and we do not believe in or surrender our lives to Jesus, there is no forgiveness for us. And that is what we should be afraid of. And one of the things that we seek to do in teaching around here is always talk about how to respond Because it's important for us not just to know what God's word says, but also for that truth to travel down into our hearts and be reflected in the ways that we live and think and operate. But if you're here and you've never placed your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one thing I want you to do today to respond, and that is to believe in Jesus. He stepped into your place 
He suffered and died on your behalf. He defeated death and offers you life and forgiveness. And not only will he save you from your sins, and not only will he save you from hell, but he will grant you an eternity with him. He has paid your price in full. There's nothing more you have to do other than believe in him. But you must believe. You must turn from being your own answer and trust completely in him. And if that's you... We want today to be your day of salvation. Call out to him to save you, and he will. And if you need, need more questions, answered, we'd love to show you how if need be. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, right, those of you who are already saved, you've already been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of God's glorious son whom he dearly loves. You are in Christ Jesus this morning. You are saved and secured in his forever. Here's a few ways that I think we can respond to this passage. And the first is this. Seek to never be the cause of division. Jesus is right. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And God, in his sovereign wisdom, God in his mercy, you know what he's done multiple times throughout your life? He has placed you. He's placed you in your family. He's placed you in your marriage. He's given you children or he's given you parents. He's placed you on a team or people that you work with. If you belong to a local church, he's placed you in that church. And I don't know why God put you where he did, and neither do you. But he has, and in his sovereign wisdom, he's done it. And whenever sinners are together, whenever they're sharing life together, division is possible. But division is never the work of the Lord. You know, in all the promises of scriptures, he never promises that you're going to agree with everything that others do. He has a one-time promise that you're going to like everything that others do. He doesn't ever promise that you're going to understand everything that others do. But you know what his word does say? In Romans 12, it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, as much as you can control it, here's what you do. You live at peace with everybody. You seek to not be the cause of division, right? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. See, division's ugly, and you and I have no power to stop it from happening. But you know what we can control? We can control being an agent of it. We can make sure that we aren't the cause of it. And so be a peacemaker. Seek to find the good. Talk to people instead of talking about them. If you don't understand something, humbly ask questions. If you still don't agree, stay silent and leave it to the Lord. You don't need to win every fight in your marriage. In fact, if you do, you'll lose your marriage. You don't need to get your way every single day at work. The world actually wouldn't run better if everyone listened to me. God didn't put me on this earth to share every opinion I have. He gave us two ears and only one mouth. Let's live accordingly. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Seek to be a peacemaker. Commit to not being an agent of division. Secondly, fight from a position of victory. The kingdom of darkness is real. It is. We're at war. We're in a battle. But our posture is never to be one of fear or cowardice. We're not to live our lives in fear. We're not to parent in fear. We're not to operate in fear. We are, what we're called to in scriptures is alertness and awareness. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be alert. Basically saying, wake up, 
Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. So resist him firm in the faith. Ephesians 5, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. It's always alertness and awareness that we're called to. And the armor of God works best when it's already on when the battle begins. And so be fully aware of the reality of the kingdom of darkness. Understand the voices and temptations and influences and ideologies that will come your way. And suit up for them. Take up your distinct honor and privilege to pray against that kingdom and the lives of those you love. Get in the fight is the invitation. But always fight from a position of strength. Because Ephesians 2 says that we used to, and that's powerful language, we used to belong to the rule of the air. Colossians 1 says that we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's son. Our king is the strong one. Our king displayed his power over the kingdom of darkness by, by, by just casting out demons with no effort. Our king sealed their fate and conquered them with his death and resurrection. Our king wins. So we should live like it. Which is why we should dispel fear and replace it with awe. We need not fear Satan with Christ on our side. You see, some people live their lives stuck in this cycle where they are paralyzed by doubts of their own salvation or believing they've committed some kind of unforgivable sin and Satan would love nothing more than to keep you there. But that is missing out on the amazing reality right in front of us. Verse 28 again, truly I tell you, Jesus says, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. You know what Hebrews 7 says? Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to him. And so the fuel that we should run off of, the driving force that should shape our decisions, the belief that should drive our priorities, the reality that must be the foundation of our hope must be that someone like him really did save someone like me. That his forgiveness is full and complete and sufficient and forever because his sacrifice on the cross was both that powerful and that precious. And when that is in place... Now, all is in place. The the draws and temptations of the enemy just aren't nearly as strong. When our all remains high, we will desire to do the work of our king and, and not fall into aiding the enemy's work. When that is in place, we need not ever fear our standing with the Lord. We don't need to be paralyzed in a cycle of shame and guilt. Instead, we are freed to love and freed to serve and freed to be a light for others because we have all we would ever need in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we're at war and our enemy is real. But church, we can head out those doors today with confidence and take ground for our king because with Jesus on our side, we cannot lose. In fact, it's not even a fair fight. So let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we can pray to and sing to and serve and worship the strong man who entered the house and bound up the lesser strong man and plundered all he had. I'm thankful that we can pray to the single greatest power in the universe who holds all the universe together. I'm thankful that our forgiveness is full and complete and sufficient because there's nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we, as we prepare for our response time now, would you 
God, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who's not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, would today be their day of salvation? Would they come to him? Would they call out to him to save them? Would they tell him, I believe, I need you to forgive me and save me? Would this moment right now, Lord, would you rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of your son? And Lord, for the rest of us, would we, would we think through how fear, how worry, how doubt, how distractions are, are, are blinding us and keeping us from getting in the fight in the battle that we cannot lose because you're on our side? Would we suit up and would we fight from a position of victory? And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We'll give you a couple minutes to spend in prayer with the Lord. If you've never given your life to him, right now is the time to just ask him to come into your life and forgive you. If you have, there's some guidance in the screens. There's some things that you can take before him today. But this is just your chance to respond to some things he's put on your heart this morning.